Well, good morning, Sebastopol Christian Church, and a truly blessed Sunday to all of you. Merry Christmas. Christ is born. The advent of our Lord is here at last. Personally, I can think of few greater pleasures than to speak with my brothers and sisters in God's family on such a topic as this. During a class, actually, that I taught here a couple years back, I remember stating that some Christians are Easter Christians, and some Christians are Christmas Christians. And by that I meant that it's not that we celebrate one and not the other, or just like one and dislike the other, but that we naturally gravitate towards uh, one holiday over the other in kind of our sentiment and, and what, we, what we resonate with more directly. And though over time I feel I've grown more deeply myself to appreciate Easter and what the death and the resurrection of Jesus means for us, as a child it was always Christmas that held my heart in rapt enchantment. Now wherever you fall along that spectrum today, I hope that all of you have felt the glory of this Christmas season. What wonder! What joy has erupted into our dark world, into the coldness of winter, and into the hardness of the human heart? Before we begin the message today and answer these questions, I'm going to ask all of you a favor. And we're on the honor system because I can't, I can't see you directly. But believe it or not, it is somewhat crucial to the success of this sermon. I want all of you to search your hearts for that unmistakable feeling. That feeling connected to the very mention of the word Christmas. A feeling of awe, of surprise, of being overcome by a joy so intense that it leaves no room for anxiousness or stress or worry about the future. Children will be able to recollect it the quickest. You adults may need to take some time. But I believe even those who are hard of heart this Christmas season can by grace slip into the swift, refreshing current of that boundless bliss, even if just for a moment. And a moment is all it takes. A moment is all you need to reorient yourself today, to tune not just your ears, but your hearts to the sweet melody of God's music. I've said that this exercise is essential to the good effect of this sermon, and I am not exaggerating. For if what I am to say is to have any lasting impact, it will not be because you have learned a new fact or even a new concept, and certainly not on, some, on account of some false nostalgia of the good old days. It will be because you have felt in the core of your soul the reality of God's personal love for you. A love so mighty, so unexpected, so undeserved, it surpasses any hope that we could have concocted for ourselves. Brothers and sisters, God is here among us, and yes, within us. I ask all of you who hear my words right now to still your hearts, still your hearts, 
set aside anything that can distract you in this moment and ask the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus himself promised will be with us forever as our comforter, as our counselor, as our advocate, to illuminate your spirit. Ask him to deliver you from the evil of self-destructive thoughts and from temptations to habits that pull us away from him. Petition him to remove from you that double darkness of sin and ignorance and fill you instead with his self-transcending love. Ask him right now as we come together before God, our Father, to pray the words of our Lord Jesus. Our Father, who art in heaven, holy is your name. Let your kingdom come and let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who've trespassed against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, I've titled today's sermon, World Without End. World Without End. It's a curious little statement found in some older liturgies and based on passages from both the Old and the New Testaments. We see in those verses references in a variety of ways to an enduring inheritance that will, quote, abide unto all generations and unto the ages of ages. Now, to some of us, this might appear as a truism. Because, of course, the world is going to keep on going. You cannot stop time. And under this perspective, the greater miracle would actually be to bring all of this universe to an end, to a screeching halt. Of course, it has to keep going on. And in fact, there are some who secretly wish for this, even during this Christmas season. And though this sad desire to see all the world end is but the fruit of despair, and the reprisal of demons, one must give credit to the kernel of truth on which it is based. For it is true that our existence on earth is a rather strange and dramatic tale, teetering between tragedy and comedy. So much of our lives is caught up in suffering and in drudgery, so many of our days spent on the mundane and the tedious. Existence can at times feel like a joke. Yet at the same time, we catch that odd glimpse of something deeper and more majestic, something that could make it all worthwhile on a walk through the woods, in a song, a lyric of poetry, in laughter, in friendship. But stranger still, when we turn to focus on these things, we lose that indescribable beauty, as if it flees the very moment we try and get a hold of it. C.S. Lewis captured the essence of this 
conflicted state in his radio address entitled, The Weight of Glory. And he spoke, The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing, for they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never visited. But we pine. The sense that in this universe we are treated as strangers, the longing to be acknowledged, to meet with some response, to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality is a part of our inconsolable secret. We do not merely want to see beauty, though God knows even that is bounty enough. We want something else which can hardly be put into words, to be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. Now that is the dilemma of being human. We feel that there is something more, something infinitely more dancing behind the gray rain curtain of this life. But wherever we turn, even when it is to the most glorious things we can find around us, we seem quite unable to catch it. And it is into this maelstrom of uncertain hope mingled with every height and depth of human experience that the Christian declares, and with great finality, glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. To what kind of life, then, what kind of world could the Christian possibly be referring? Is it simply a prolongation, an extension of the current dynamic? The back and forth flux of life and death, prosperity and calamity, pleasure and suffering that characterizes our current state, simply extended to an infinite duration? No, no, not that kind of eternity but rather one based on the unlimited dynamism of God's own being. As the hymn so elegantly describes, Thou hast no youth, great God, an unbeginning end thou art. Thy glory in itself abode and still abides in its own tranquil heart. No age can heap its outward years on thee, dear God. Thou art thyself thine own eternity. And that hymn was by Frederick William Faber, entitled The Eternity of God. Or for those who are less poetically oriented, to put in a more concise scholarly description, here also from the pen of the great intellectual of the Middle Ages, Boethius, he writes, Eternity, then, is the whole simultaneous and perfect possession of boundless life. 
Eternity is the whole, simultaneous, and boundless, and rather, sorry, perfect possession of boundless life. That is the life into which the Christian calls humanity. That boundless life and forever present youth is the world without end, which he declares as a reality already here. And not only that, but a reality into which we all can participate. This thrill of hope, which permits even a world-weary world to rejoice, was inaugurated some 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem with the birth of a child. But before we can approach how that birth could translate into something like a world bursting at the seams with love and vitality, we must seek to understand how monumental that birth was. It is very possible, and I'm very self-consciously aware of how possible it is, especially in our time, that all the years of Christmas trees and carols and stories of Santa Claus and holiday treats and a whole host of other traditions, which I love, might possibly have inured us, numbed us, to the earth-shattering reality that lies nestled at the heart of Christmas. God became a man. God became a man. You can say those words a thousand times, and the thousand and first time should be just, should sound to you just as strangely magnificent as the first. God drew our human nature into the divine so perfectly that it held together in his single person, Jesus. Whatever methods of human improvement had been fashioned up until that point of history, whatever could be called progress, however compelling it was, were forever recast that night. For divinity had united with human nature, and the change to our destiny could not be undone. There is no end to exploring what this means for you and for me. But for brevity's sake, I will appeal to the words of one of our great church fathers, Athanasius, who lists four great changes the incarnation of the Word of God accomplished on our behalf. Athanasius writes, We have then now stated the reason for his bodily appearing, that it was in the power of none other to turn the corruptible to incorruption, except the Savior himself, that had at the beginning also made all things out of nothing, and that none other could create anew the likeness of God's image for men, save the image of the Father, and that none other could render the mortal immortal, save our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the very life, and that none other could teach men of the Father and destroy the worship of idols, save the word that orders all things and is alone the only, the true, only begotten Son of the Father. You see, prior to Christ, we were slaves 
utter slaves to our passions, bound to the limitations of this body and its inevitable breaking down. We had lost our meaning and purpose. We had become caught up in the perpetual pursuit of an endless parade of lesser deities, which, of course, being only a part of creation themselves, could never satisfy our eternal spiritual hunger. Death then had real power over us, and not just in the moment of dying, but in the fear, the fear of it which conditioned our entire lives up until that point. How perilous must our condition have been that God alone could remedy it. But in retrospect, it makes a great deal of sense. For the higher a thing has been made, the greater the damage which will be caused to it by its fall. And we were made uniquely in the image of our Father. Now another wonderful early church figure, Maximus the Confessor, summarizes the work of Jesus' life as follows. He writes, and quite simply but profoundly, as man, Jesus accomplishes in truth all the human destiny that he himself had predetermined as God and from which man had turned. He unites man to God. He unites man to God. Doesn't the very thought of that bring your soul to a reverent stillness? Or perhaps we are not really living as if this were so. Possibly we have lost sight of the one great truth that gives the Christian message its real power. You know, one of my great fears for the church is not simply that people leave it. In fact, at several points in his own ministry, when his following began to grow, Jesus would coincidentally issue one of his harder teachings, the kind which tended to send the lion's share of his followers scattering. See, Jesus didn't really care directly about numbers. He cared about bringing others into his life, which is life indeed. Now, see, my great fear for the church is almost the opposite. It is that we have become something which is no longer a threat to this world. That the church produces men and women who are fundamentally no different than before its influence, peddling a message that is essentially no different from the hollow mantras of the present age. I fear a church that is ignorant a church that sells the snake oil of self-help in the stage makeup of real spiritual transformation. A church that tells you that heaven is only a pleasant thought away. A church that is non-impactful, which demands nothing, which offers nothing, sacrifices nothing, and changes nothing of the world's system. A church that is non-essential. That is what I fear. Brothers and sisters, we must believe that God is real, that his presence makes a difference, that his love makes a difference. 
But do we? Do we yet believe even the simple words of the Lord's Prayer that we prayed only a few minutes ago? Or has our wonder at being in the hands of the Almighty God waned? For instance, take the words, Give us this day our daily bread. That's simple enough, right? But to those of you with money, and that will be most all of you, do you truly believe that it is in God's power to provide for your nourishment? Or do you look to your wallet and the bills inside of it and secretly conclude to yourself that it really makes no difference whether you pray those words or not? Since, of course, you can buy as much as your money can afford. Has God not then become superfluous? In this way, the poor are closer to the kingdom than those with money, for at least they are not tempted with the illusion that material blessings can render God secondary. Brothers and sisters, Christianity is not a hobby. Christianity is not a social club. Beware of a gospel in which there is no offense, because it is very, very likely a gospel in which there is no power. The name of one of modern society's many gods can be seen quite often on bumper stickers and on windows. Sometimes he goes by the name Coexist, and at other times, tolerance. Many display these monikers with a deep sense of pride, not realizing that tolerance may be little more than a prettier name for indifference, and that it takes no particular excellence of character to exist within the same geography as other human creatures. You will only advertise coexistence if you think that coexistence is the best you can offer someone. But Christianity claims to offer a great deal more than merely surviving alongside other creatures. To borrow a metaphor from G.K. Chesterton, Christianity is, in many ways, like a key. Firstly, it has a definite shape. In fact, it is a thing which depends entirely on keeping its shape to be at all effective. Melt it down into a cauldron and blend it with a million other religions and you have destroyed its value. Secondly, its shape will seem strange to anyone not familiar with its purpose. In fact, in a world that hadn't seen a lock or didn't believe that they existed, a key would seem like something elaborately trivial and perhaps needlessly complex. Lastly, and this is the ultimate test of the key and its simplest feature. It opens the door. What awaits on the other side of that door that the way of Jesus opens, we have only a few more minutes to contemplate together. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul writes of God the Father, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through the Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, 
being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Filled to the measure, overflowing with God's light. Jesus promises to live and make his home with your spirit. You can know him. You can know him as a friend and as a brother. How many of us today have felt the impact of knowing about God, but have not felt the enlivening energy, the dynamism, and the power, and the rejuvenation that comes from knowing Him? I, feel, I fear that many Christians tragically misunderstand what is meant by Jesus and the Holy Spirit truly indwelling us. We, we underestimate not only its effect, but its very nature and cause. We imagine, I'm sad to say, that Christ dwells in us, as does our deceased relative, as a memory. And perhaps that memory is very moving and very profound and very meaningful. But a memory is not a relationship. A memory is dependent merely on the mind of the one remembering. And gradually, though inevitably, memories fade. But the living God cannot fade, nor does he require us to sustain the reality of his presence. He is not like a statue in the field of our thought, slowly weathered down by the rains of our sorrows and the passage of time, whose shine and beautiful details are only maintained by our labors, the situation is much rather reversed. We are by nature limited, finite, and liable to destruction. And it is not but the relational indwelling presence of Jesus that wipes away the murky film from our hearts that we may once more reflect as in a mirror the glory of God. The holy and awesome God who in his most powerful manifestations to his people of the Old Testament appeared as a visible flame. Whether we think of the examples, the great examples of the burning bush or the raging fire on Mount Sinai. That God has now through the union of natures in Christ Jesus migrated to dwell within us. It is no hyperbole to say that the height and glory of Christianity is the reality of God dwelling in the human soul. The height and the glory of Christianity is, God in, is the reality of God indwelling in the human soul. And as Irenaeus, the second century theologian, stated so profoundly, for the glory of God is a human being fully alive. The glory of God is a human being fully alive. It is to God's glory that we live. And remember, we are only made fully alive in Christ. 
Indeed, as was first seen at Pentecost, the blaze that is God's presence becomes for the Christian the entire driving energy of his or her existence. If you are disciples of Jesus, you have become sons and daughters of the flame. Do not quench the divine spark within you. Do not hide your light. Illuminate and warm your world, and you will take part in growing the hidden kingdom that was established all those years ago and is slowly but surely making itself known on earth. Now, as we prepare to close, I want you to meditate with me on a poem which captures the feeling that we were discussing earlier, that feeling of indefinite hope. The title of this poem is The Lost Chord. Seated one day at the organ, I was weary and ill at ease, and my fingers wandered idly over the noisy keys. I do not know what I was playing or what I was dreaming then, but I struck one chord of music like the sound of a great amen. It flooded the crimson twilight like the close of an angel's psalm, and it lay on my fevered spirit with a touch of infinite calm. It quieted pain and sorrow like love overcoming strife, and it seemed the harmonious echo from our discordant life. It linked all perplexed meanings into one perfect peace and trembled away into silence as if it were loath to cease. I have sought, but I seek it vainly, that one lost chord divine which came from the soul of the organ and entered into mine. It may be that death's bright angel will speak in that chord again. It may be that only in heaven I shall hear that grand amen. Brothers and sisters, we do not have to wait until heaven to hear that chord played again. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ is here with us today. He lives in you. If we fully accept him and do not settle for lukewarm spirituality, God will transform us not merely into those who can hear his music, but those who can play it too. Look now, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. No longer will there be any curse. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the lamp, the light of a lamp, or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever, world without end. Let's pray.
Father God, we ask that you would consider us in our humble state, in our weakness, amidst the challenges of this, of this life. God, we ask that we would be overwhelmed and brought to that reverent silence, that reverent stillness through contemplation of the birth of your Son, of the birth of the Logos, of the Word of God taken flesh to become a human being like us. And God, we know what Jesus came here for. The gift of his birth was miracle of miracles, a gift enough, a gift that we never could have dreamed of or ever deserved. But we know also, God, that Jesus came to bear many burdens, to live a life of perfect obedience, and a life that certainly was not easy, and a life that ultimately ended in the greatest sacrifice a human being can give. And all of that, God, is to our benefit. God, we are overwhelmed. We are humbled by the sheer magnitude of that glory. And it's with a contrite and humble heart that I pray for all of us today that if we haven't begun to take those steps into your kingdom, if we haven't begun to prepare in our hearts a mansion for the indwelling of your Son and of your Spirit, God, that we would do so this very day, this very moment, and not waste a minute before we do, knowing that there is a great kingdom and a great inheritance laid before us, that all that Christ has, he has shared with us. I pray, God, that we would prepare for the reign that Revelations has spoken of, that we would see ourselves as nobility, as kings and queens in the making, God. Be with all of us today. Be with us in the concluding days of 2020. And let us look forward with great expectation and hope to the goodness and the glory that you set before us, not just in 2021, but for eternity beyond that. Amen.